But then within that, you have to understand if you're going to lead people, what drives people, what motivates people. Some people do their work because they want to look after their family. Some do it because they want to, they're proud of the work they do. So some people want to get, get rich and that's a fine thing too. You know, everyone is different. Until you understand the true motivation, it's very hard to actually motivate people to do the great job, especially when you're putting teams together, right? So when you're intrinsically putting teams together, whether a five-person team or a 10-person team around a special project, if everybody's coming at it from different motivations, it's very hard to have actually great outcomes. So you've got to dig into that. Life is an endless stream of challenges, but no worries. Manoj is bringing the world's best minds right here for you. My gosh, Manoj, you just blew my mind. Thank you, universe. Manoj, thank you. I'm so grateful. Makes me feel a little bit better. Thank you. Bootstrapping Your Dreams is here to give you what you need to succeed. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Bootstrapping Your Dreams show. I'm your host, Manoj Agarwal. And today we are going to have a very interesting conversation with Robin Daniels. And the list of accomplishments that Robin has is huge. So I'll try to summarize it as much as I can and then we'll dive in. So Robin worked as at uh, Matterport and we worked as a CMO chief marketing officer. Prior to that, he worked at LinkedIn as a global head of product partner, uh, transformation marketing. Before that, uh, he worked at Vera and Sonata. Both of those companies got acquired. And from 2011 to 2014, um, Robin worked at Box uh, at, as a global head of enterprise product partner in the industry. Um, and at, its, at Salesforce as the director of product marketing. Uh, he has spent his career at industry-defining tech companies in the United States and Europe and has over 20 years of business leadership marketing experience building high-growth brands. And Robin has, uh, is currently working with Sequoia Capital, one of the largest venture capital companies in the, in the world, helping them uh, scout next generation of companies and talent um, and he's also the founding member, advisor, investor at BuyFounders since uh, 2017. So BuyFounders is an early stage venture capital fund actively investing in tech startups across the Nordics and Baltics. And this is just uh, scratching the surface of what uh, Robin has done. So let's dive in. Welcome, Robin. It, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Thanks, Manush. It's great to be here. And I think you and I have been trying to plan this for, for years now. I'm glad yes, we're finally yeah. making it happen, you know, across yeah, the world, as we say. Yeah. Uh, but thanks for having me. And thanks yeah, for I think intro. absolutely. Yeah, we met about two, two and a half years ago. I think Hollywood has uh, released multiple more movies in the time frame that we have been trying to schedule this uh, this podcast. So, uh, so great. So, let's get to know you even better. Like, how, you have done so much. You have accomplished so much. So many like uh, uh, two, two and a half IPOs. Uh, so we'll dive into that. But such a broad range of uh, experience and success. How did it all get started? What is your story? How, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Well, I'm, I'm definitely where I am because a lot of people along the way took a chance on me. Uh, you know, I didn't come from a illustrious background. You know, I don't really have much of an education. I grew up kind of poor in, uh, in Copenhagen, Denmark to... Uh, bohemian hippie parents and uh but i learned very early on that you know i kind of had to fight for everything that i wanted to uh, succeed in life if, if everything I, I wanted to accomplish i had to fight for nothing was kind of given to me so i always had this kind of in, in, innate hunger um to to go out and forge my own way so um 
and very early on in my life, I got interested in technology. And I always like, I could just see the impact technology had on people's lives. And I loved tinkering around with it. I was kind of a nerd, you know, sitting and putting together you know, my first like uh, you know, desktop computer, you know, the, the memory and the, the motherboard and all that kind of stuff. And then learning how to program was super fun. Um, and so I always knew my, my future would lie in technology somehow. And then, uh, you know, I, I started seeing the rise of what was happening in Silicon Valley. You know, this was in the 90s. I was reading articles in Time Magazine and Business Week and Newsweek, online, whatever I could find. And just like it seemed like this magical place to me that you could go. And it doesn't matter who you were, what background you had. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, what education you had. As long as you had a good idea and you worked hard and you were a good person, you could succeed. And so it always kind of just attracted me a lot. And I thought, this is like the peak of what I want to be a part of. It feels like this is where, what, what it's calling to me. And so I ended up, you know, after um, school in Denmark, I ended up working at a tech company in Denmark. And it was so boring. It was definitely not what I'd read about in all these stories. It was like, felt like factory work. Even though I was working in a high tech company as a, as a Java programmer, it felt like factory work. People come in at eight o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock exactly, they would stop for lunch. And then four o'clock, ah, doesn't matter what you're doing, uh, the day's over, we're leaving. Like, it feels like I'm in a factory. What the hell? I'm like, this is not what I thought my life was going to be. I thought it was going to be this intense journey and exciting adventure with peers who were just so excited about doing great work. So I ended up quitting my job and I bought a one-way ticket to California. And I'd never been, I, I, I didn't have a job. I didn't know a single person. Um, but I always felt like I didn't want to look back on my life when I was older and, and regret not having the courage to go there, living through this magical time that we were living in. So February 1st, 2000, I, I moved over there uh, to, to California. I landed in San Francisco. I had rented a room at a shitty hotel in San Jose because it was the only thing I could afford. I had enough money, I figured, to last me like two months before I had to throw in the towel and go back to uh, to Denmark. But I applied to every job I could find on Craigslist. And uh, anybody who would talk to me, I figured, what well, I, I have nothing to lose. I just want to talk to as many people as I can. So in the first two weeks or so, I had about 15, maybe 20 job interviews all over Silicon Valley. I had no idea how big the area was. So I was, feel like I was just kind of like constantly uh, stressed about running late for me. But after those two weeks, I ended up getting two job offers. So I'm like, oh, great. So I ended up joining a small startup company in Los Gatos in Silicon Valley in, in uh, February 2000. A month after I took the job, the whole market crashed. Mm-hmm. And that company did not end up making it. And then I went to another company, and that did not end up making it. Uh, and, but eventually, I got to a bigger company in 2001 that was more stable and growing. And that's when I really feel like I got my start. But I really got my start in the first company. I ended up getting hired by... Um, the VP of marketing, this woman named Elise Zimmerman. And and she, I mean, I really had no experience, but she just took a chance on me. And she saw something in me and she nurtured me and said, hey, you know, even though I'm hiring you to be the webmaster, web designer, as it was called back then, um, I, I think you'd be better in like product marketing. And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. And she kind of took me under her wing and showed me what that was. And I've always taken that mentality with me in every job I've had because Whenever I see young, hungry talent who just just needs somebody to believe in them, yeah. those people usually go above and beyond. And so whether you look at my time at Salesforce or at LinkedIn or WeWork, I've tried to hire people who just have that aptitude and grit and hunger. But anyway, so over the last span of like 20 years, you know, even though not everything has worked out, luckily I've, I've ended up choosing some companies that 
they became uh, iconic companies in the last 20 years, Salesforce, Box, LinkedIn, uh, WeWork, you know, even though that had some troubles, it's still, it's still around and I think still very beloved. And my last company, Matterport, which we took public in, in July of 2021. But I ended up leaving that company at the end of last year, end of 2021. And since then, I've been, as you very well mentioned in your uh, intro, I've been, been advising companies, working with just as, as many companies as I can find to pay forward the experience that I have. I'm very much in the mindset of how can I help the next generation of people who are hungry for success and just don't know what that looks like? How can I mentor and guide them and, and help them think bigger about what's possible out there? Because that's what I did in my life. So. Yeah. That's the journey I've been on for the last couple. That's of an years. amazing journey. Yeah, I think a uh, few takeaways that I can I can um, uh, reiterate is like you know that that first of all, thinking that it is possible for you that hunger that you have to have because most people don't even believe in themselves, let alone you know others believing in them. And then as you said, like finding those people, finding those uh, mentors and coaches who can see something. And because once again, like even if we believe ourselves. Uh, it's like a you know a rough slab of marble that needs to be chipped away, and you know Absolutely. that, that uh, uh, David needs to come out of that. So it's great that you found it, and now you are uh, you know repeating the cycle and helping others. So that's amazing. Now, um, uh, what how, what what kind of uh, uh, you know? Because I know a little bit of your history as well. Like you you talk about a lot of mistakes um, mm -hmm. that yes. that uh, are made in this in this uh, you know, high pressure environment of startups. So what are some of the mistakes that you have uh, made and learned important lessons from them? Yeah, and the re one of the reasons I talk so much about mistakes is one, I wanna normalize that it's normal to have mistakes. You're gonna screw up a lot. I've screwed up a lot. And, and I, I think when you're in the mistake, it feels like the world is falling apart, right? Uh, but it's not, you're gonna get be fine, trust me. You know? so, so that's one thing. The second reason I do it is, I love LinkedIn as a platform, but it also is a very polished, linear platform. It makes it seem like everything for everybody is always up and to the right, right? For you, for everybody else, like, oh, your career is just up and to the right. But your career is really like this in, in reality. And it goes up and goes down. You have failures and you have successes. And so trying to share some of that hopefully gives people some insight that this is not an always up and to the right situation. It's never going to be. It's not going to be for you. You're going to have challenges, whether or not that's working for a bad manager, you have a team issue, a program that you're putting out there that's not working out. There's going to be so many things. So that's the second reason I do it. But in terms of, of actual, I would say, failures, the things that always have I have most regrets about is usually about people. When I haven't done the right thing for the people like that sometimes marketing programs haven't worked out or a campaign hasn't worked out and yeah it sucks because it doesn't yield the result i want but it's not the thing that keeps me up at night as much it's more about if i have uh tension in the team and we're not executing really well and i want to solve that or i have some assholes in the team and i need to deal with that or i have somebody who's really good and i can tell they're on their verge of leaving because they're not i'm not able to give them what they want i had a great example at at LinkedIn, I had uh, somebody who worked for me. She was amazing. Everybody loved working with her. And she, she went above and beyond and she delivered really well. And she came to me and she said, you know, here, you know my results are great. Uh, I want to get promoted. You know, what can I do? And we said, okay, here's what, I do. Here's what you need to do. Um, and then I kind of like pushed it forward a little bit. But I, but I was so busy with other things that I didn't really do enough about it. And then she came again, I think a few months later and said, hey, you know, you know, I'd 
look at my results. Now they're even better. You know, I, I should get promoted, you know, and, and, but, you know, LinkedIn was a big company. It's a very structured mm, process yeah, yeah, about yeah. when you get promoted and so on. But the net result was I would, I didn't move fast enough. I didn't fight hard enough for her. And she ended up leaving. It was just like, it took a toll on the culture because everybody liked her. It took a toll on the performance. Her, she was one of our rock stars. And I could have done more, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm in the confines and restrictions of a bigger company, but you know that's the job of a manager, of a leader, is to fight for your team. You know, mm-hmm. if that's not what you do, then then what else? You're not just there to like move things around. So yeah. you see the people aspects of things that that I regret. You know, people might look at my my experience with WeWork and say, um, "Well, do you regret that?" Well, not really, because I did everything I could. I always think of it. I write about this a lot on on LinkedIn right now. You know, if you can control the inputs, you know, I when I if, if I can give it my all every day and I'm proud of the work that I do and I'm proud of how I try to pull things together it's the best I can do mm. like I'm not proud if I know that I'm kind of half-assing it but that's not my style the outcome then is something I can't control like all the stuff around me of course I'm trying to Im- affect the outcome by my actions but at the end of the day anybody who tells you they can control the outcome completely is delusional it's just it's just yeah. not if you can have a better shot at a better outcome by the input, meaning your mindset, your actions, the way you treat people, the creativity you put into something, the energy you put into something. So it's a lot to be said for it. So when I look at the WeWork experience, yes, it was a failure when I was there from an outside perspective, but it was more a failure because I think we as a team uh, couldn't rally enough around like some of the things that we had to do. It wasn't so much around the, the IPO didn't happen. Yeah, it kind of sucked, but that's not what I, I regret. It was more around some of the, the people stuff that, we were kind of getting in each other's way. And so, mm-hmm. on. so, it's, so it's just, I think to me, failures is much more around the people than the actual programs or, yeah. or outcomes of some of the stuff that we're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as a leader, uh, I, I realize that, you know, um, we only have like one or two skills, like we're, which we are really, really good at. And yeah. the rest is the team. And, and if we don't take care of the team and they are not gelling well, nothing, uh, the outcome, as you said, is not the, the best outcome. Um, yeah. we, we can only put the odds in our favor and those odds are not 100% ever. Um, completely, completely. So now you, you bring up many interesting points here, you know, and uh, because you have such a unique position that you have worked in Europe, and you've worked in US, you have a uh, sort of exposure to multi- multicultural sort of, uh, you know, a multicultural uh, environments. And um, I come, you know, I've had the same experience in multiple countries, but a lot of people, a lot of founders, um, they have not traveled as much, they have not had exposure, uh, you know, to multiple cultures. So uh, can you share shed some light on how your travel or your exposure to multiple cultures have, has helped? you to mm-hmm. look at these sort of uh, you know um, very uh, detailed aspects of people management of team management of of being a leader how does that uh, affect you yeah it's a, it's a fantastic question because it, it's definitely shapes you as a leader because i mean once you get into the cultural understanding of how you communicate it's a lot of times around communication like every culture has a different way of communicating mm-hmm. in some cultures you get into a meeting and it's straight to business and you're like wow shit there's no small talk and others are like you have to warm up for 30 minutes and you're like yeah, yeah. we get into business like yeah. we're talking about something you have to kind of learn the rhythms of that because you can easily offend people or get off on the wrong foot you know it's happening i had this experience actually 
um, where I was at a company called Veritas pretty early in my career, 2001 to 2005. Mm. And because I was in product marketing, so I was actually spending a lot of time with customers around the world. I was, went to Asia and Australia and Europe and so on. They sent me on an etiquette course um, mm. and to like learn how to like interact and deal with, with different cultures. It was super fun. But I, I learned a lot from that about, about how do you connect with somebody, you know, and, and, and understanding again, you know, different cultures like in certain parts of the world like you go to southern europe that you oftentimes you warm up a little bit first you go to germany or northern europe where i'm from it's you pretty much straight yeah. into business right in yeah. the u.s there's a lot of small talk and yeah. and so on you know and then there are other places that are a little bit more hierarchical you have to talk to certain people and it's i think it's changing i mean with, with the beauty of like the internet and you know glo global society i think it's it's a little bit more acceptable that you don't have to be perfect in all those instances anymore, right? Of course, you have to be mindful as a leader because if, you, if you're not mindful and you end up trampling on people's, like, I would say, cultural heritage or the yeah, way yeah, yeah. that they think about things, you can easily get into trouble. I'm sure when I look back on, on my life that I've said insensitive things, even though I didn't mean to, or, or maybe, you know... Uh, been too hasty in a meeting or like okay you know sometimes you can definitely tell afterwards like okay this this was a little different than what we're used yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. and so 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 it's it's definitely happened a lot um i would say the, the biggest culture shock for me was when i uh, honestly went to japan and mm -hmm. i love japan i'm like it's one of those places i'm absolutely in love with but it was the first country i ever went to many many years ago where i truly felt like a foreigner wow it was mm -hmm. just like it was culture was so different it was so beautiful but the way they were in meetings and the way they spoke to each other and the signage and the language it was like i truly felt for the first time like wow you know because i when you're traveling in kind of western europe and so on you kind of assume like everybody speaks english that was just mm -hmm. not true there right and it was much more of a culture where you you feel like you're on a, on a, a away game in some way. <laughs> you're like, okay, yeah, wow, yeah. I, I really have to step up my, yeah, my yeah. understanding and and uh, appreciation of this. Um, so that was the first time I would say, but it's just been many times since then, honestly. But but as a leader, to your point, it's uh, I think at the end of the day, leadership is really about understanding human psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so there's there's of course the high level understanding like cultures and so on. But but then within that, you have to understand if you're going to lead people, right, what drives people, what motivates people. Some people do their work because they want to look after their family. Some do it because they want to they're proud of the work they do. So some people want to get, get rich and that's a fine thing, too. You know, everyone is different. Until you understand the true motivation, it's very hard to actually motivate people to do the great job, especially when you're putting teams together. Right. So when you're intrinsically putting teams together, whether a five-person team or a 10-person team around a special project, if everybody's coming at it from different motivations, it's very hard to have actually great outcomes. So you've got to dig into that pretty early on. Like if somebody's like, is an overachiever and gets joy out of that aspect of achievement and the other person is like, you know, I'm doing it because I just want to like get a paycheck. You're fundamentally at odds. They're going to be conflict. You can tell already yeah, right? yeah, because yeah. one person's going to like be, hey, you're not delivering enough. And the other person's going to like, hey, so, so I think there's a lot to that as well, understanding that and driving the right outcomes. Yeah, yeah. and especially now, as you know, um, with the with the advent of remote work, uh, hybrid work, everybody's sort of coming together. The world is getting smaller and smaller by the day. So you really find yourself talking to mm -hmm. people from multiple continents and multiple countries on the same team. Usually, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, 
the productivity and efficiency has gone up so much because of remote work. It's great. But there's a lot of things that's really hard about it. Like leadership, I think, is very hard, especially around people leadership. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I um, A couple of years ago, I had uh, I was a leader of a fairly large team, and there were two factions that were just not getting along at all. So I got the leaders of the two factions together in a room, and mm-hmm. we were like, talk, we spent like two hours talking about things and like what's really going on and how can we kind of get to a better place so we can really like motivate our teams to work better together and so on. At the end of the meeting, uh, we're like everyone's like agreeing, you know, but the body language of both of the leaders were like was like this, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I could tell that even though they were saying, Yeah, we agree, the body language was not there. So I stopped and I said, We're not leaving this room until we actually get to a point where we fundamentally can figure out how to work together. But oh, my point is over Zoom or uh, Google, that's very hard. If you're just seeing yeah, people yeah. from the, the face up, because so much mm-hmm. of leadership, I think, is about reading people's energy, mm-hmm. body language, and so on. And when people are sitting like this, you can tell they're kind of pissed off, right? They, they don't really want to be there. They don't agree with anything and so on. And so um, I think that there's certain things Zoom or remote culture has been great for. Again, like productivity is amazing. But, but, but decision-making, I think, reading people's like motivations, body language, I think it's just harder. It's, yeah, it's not impossible, yeah. but you really as a leader have to lean into it and spend more time digging into people uh, to get to know them because yeah, until yeah. you get so, you're oftentimes going to get, I think, more conflict. You are listening to Bootstrapping Your Dream Show with Manu Jagarwal. Businesses face numerous challenges like finding the right product market fit, determining the market size, implementing a winning go-to-market strategy, crafting customer-centric USP, competitive analysis, looking for funding, building up cash flow and profitability. We have made a lot of free resources available to the entrepreneurial community, including this podcast. This podcast. We invite you to check out our websites and follow us on social channels. The links are in the show notes. We hope you find the resources useful and utilize them to grow your business. Grow your business. We also have some programs for entrepreneurs. If you find our content useful, then you will definitely find the programs outstanding so do check them out now you know i'll, I'll ask you a question about um, what makes companies successful but i think that's a usual question what i would really ask you to uh, answer is like what are the common misconceptions about success because you mm-hmm. know for example i'll i'll share one thing like you know i talk to a lot of founders they say uh, i need a unique idea i need a greenfield mm-hmm. idea to be successful but uh, you know as we know that's not true uh, another thing is about venture capital you know a lot of founders say oh i can change the world uh, you know but i all i need is a million dollars and 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 then i'm off to the races so what are some of the misconceptions that you have seen around which are totally not true for success in in this industry yeah i mean i think i think you hit on some some good ones um but it, it, I mean, execution is everything. It's definitely not about the ideas. You know, like the ideas, of course, are, are, are great. I mean, I think I always talk about you, you can execute at a lot of different levels. And I, it's, to make it simple, I usually break it up into three levels. You can do tactical work, which is like incremental work, basically. You can do strategic work, which is more like linear growth, meaning like if we do this, the whole team pulls together, we're going to see 2x outcome. And then I say you can do a kind of epic work or exponential work, which is like the 10x things, right? Meaning... Uh, if you if you do some of those things, it can change the trajectory and outcome for your company in a way that creates uh, like one of these these uh, legendary companies out there. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to do for most um, leaders, most CEOs, most business leaders, 
because it's uncomfortable. The reason it's uncomfortable because if you're just operating in the tactical realm, you have a lot of data to guide you, so it feels safe. If you're operating in the strategic realm, I think you have some data. You know, you have some thesis, you have some data, you have a you have some ideas about what's going to happen, and you probably have some data to guide. But there's also a lot of unknowns. So just you're like a little bit, but your workers get like this is what we think is going to happen if we do this program, this product, this marketing campaign, the sales strategy, whatever it is. When you get to the epic realm, it's not much data to guide you because if there was, everybody would have done it already. Mm-hmm. So you're basically a lot of times taking a chance on something that you have a thesis on is going to like change the world. Right. You know, and, and I think of it, you know, two, two examples that come to mind for me is, um, you know, Airbnb is a good example of a company that found something that was so broken and they said, you know, we can do this 10 times better. That's one way, I think, to do epic things. You can either do something that's 10 times better or you do something that's never been done before. Both are risky, <laughs> very risky. So Airbnb, for example, said, okay, you could rent a home before Airbnb existed. It was just a shitty experience. Yeah. Super Like, oh, you have to like figure out, is this a trusted source? The pictures were not good. How do I pay this person? What, how do we exchange details? You know, you didn't know if they were legit. They didn't know if you were legit. This is a horrible experience, but you could do it. It was possible. Airbnb came along and said, we could do it 10 times better. What the other way is you do something that's never been done before, you know, like uh, Tesla, SpaceX, kind of like Elon Musk level stuff. Yeah. Right? You know, even Uber, I would put in that category. I mean, before the advent of mobile phones and the idea of people using their own vehicles, to, like move people around, that is a, brand new bold idea that was no guarantee it was going to work right but obviously they had a thesis around this and so my point is i see too many companies play it too safe all the time and so they get they they, and then they wonder why we only getting you know uh incremental or maybe linear growth we're not seeing the exponential growth well you're doing Mm -hmm. something that is kind of predictable and everybody else can also do as well Mm -hmm. and so this model has been 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 effective for me and both thinking about the business level but also at the, the, the more programmatic level, like in programs you want to put out there, you know, you want to put out something, let's just say a marketing example, that is so different that nobody else is doing it, right? And I usually say to my my teams, like when we're thinking about big new ideas, if you come to me with an idea and, and unless it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, it's probably not big enough. It doesn't mean because I don't have to agree with everything. That's not my job as a leader, but it has to kind of push the boundaries and be different. It has to make me go, can we do this? Is it possible? Should we do this? Uh, is it stupid? You know, when I ask those questions, it's usually a sign that ooh, they're, they're, we're, we're triggering some, some yeah. uncomfortable feelings. But it means that you're entering that territory of like a little bit more gut feel. Because if it's too safe, you know, if you, sometimes I look at stuff that comes out, I'm like, I could put a competitor logo on this. It could be kind of like, you know, it's good, but is it that different? Not yeah. really. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's, a, there's, there's a couple of different things, executions, everything, but there's also the level of thinking. And my point about this framework is you have to give yourself permission to get into a mindset of epic thinking because it's so easy. Just every day goes by with tactical stuff, sometimes some strategic stuff. The worst weeks for me is when I had a when I when I'm Friday night uh, looking back on the week and I'm like, wow, it's a really busy week. I was so busy, like 80 hours. I worked my ass off, but I don't really know if I made a difference. I don't know if I mm-hmm. made any difference on any big big things. It was all like firefighting. And so you have to find the space and the time to get yourself in that mindset to do something really bold. 
I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's, that's what, because once you do it, what happens is it'll change the outcome and trajectory of your company, but more importantly, it will change the outcome and trajectory for your life. Yeah, yeah, that becomes absolutely. your calling card. It, it will create so much momentum around you, either internally in your company that you'll get promoted, or it'll create a, a vibe around you in the industry. After I leaned all in on chatter with Salesforce, that was mm-hmm. my moment where I, where I did that. That created enough momentum in my life where other companies started coming to me. After that, honestly, I never had to go apply for a job. I still have to, of course, go through the process of like mm-hmm. interviewing and so on. But companies started finding me because they I created enough of a momentum around me, and they said, "Hey, whatever you did for Salesforce, come do it for us." You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so leaning in, doing something bold, has a, a tremendous impact on your life as well, and hopefully also for the company. Right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's a very interesting contrast as well. Like you know, uh, entrepreneurship and startups are all about taking risk, and yeah. as soon as we get a little bit of success we we draw boundary like you know okay we don't want to lose it now right so so that's very interesting and uh coming back to your people skills you know obviously Mm -hmm. you you've uh uh, you've uh, developed this growth mindset and Mm -hmm. and risk-taking appetite but how do you how do you make other people do that like um you know one of the mentors that i have the first entrepreneurship lesson he taught me was get comfortable with discomfort you know (laughs) that's your zone right like if you're not uncomfortable and um and you are not okay with it there is something wrong and that's what you said as well but how do you transfer that into other people's mind well first of all you have to let people know that this is the way you're thinking and you don't have to use those words and so on, but you, it, people won't guess, right? So the first thing I do when I come into a new company, I shared the Robin Daniels instruction manual about how to work with me and how I think. Because it's just like, you know, you've gotten a new boss before probably. I have many times. And you're always like in the first couple of months, like, what are they thinking? How do they think about How do they see the world? What do they care about? I just try to take the guesswork out of it. So I put together an instruction manual about what I'm passionate about, what I dislike, how I think about things, you know, things I've been involved in and so on, a little bit about my life and family, instantly like just takes the pressure out of it. But it also gives people a mental model of how I think about, um, you know, marketing and leadership and so on. Because that's the first step. Then the second step, I think, is you have to then go and actually train people on how to do this. And that can take time, you know, it's it's not going to happen overnight if you come into an organization who's very set in their way of thinking then it takes time to kind of undo a little bit of that thinking and you have to push them in gently in a new direction to kind of like open up their mindset. And as a leader, you have to give them space to do so because it's so easy again, like I just said, to get bogged down with, okay, we got to do this now. This program needs to go live and this campaign and we need to launch this product and this event is coming up. And then, you know, the, the, the epic stuff always gets kind of pushed to the side because we're so busy, right? So you have to figure out like, how do I shield my team? I've always tried as much as I can to shield my team from all the stuff around them so they can focus. You could argue whether or not I've been successful. Sometimes I have, and sometimes I'm sure I haven't. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to, as a leader, like figure out to do that because these magical moments do not happen in a vacuum. And then you got to then force it a little bit. Like let's go in once a month and spend two hours on brainstorming together things that we could do that might push the on. And you might come out of that two hour meeting with nothing because again, I think in your lifetime, you might do two or three epic things. Like trying to do it every month or every quarter, or every year even is tough. But at least you're trying to work towards it and you're kind of giving yourself in the mindset of, of doing something like that. So getting into a space where you can do that and kind of getting a team around you. And over time, if you do that enough times, 
the team starts realizing what it is that you're trying to do. You're trying to like open up new avenues of thinking that is a little bit more about trusting their instinct and their intuitive nature uh, that they might have. Cause I, you know, you know, there's a, I think this fallacy that some people are naturally more creative than others. I don't know if that's really true. I think everybody's pretty creative. They just might get put in a box where they are, the creativity is kind of enforced out of them. Most yeah. people actually have pretty creative ideas, but creativity can take so many forms. And when I say creativity, it doesn't mean like, wow, you know, it's so weird and different. It could be a creative way to solve a business problem. It could be a creative way to enter a new market. It could be lots of different ways to be creative. I think most people, they they. Oh, I'm not creative. I've heard that many times. Oh no, no, I'm not creative. I'm, a, I'm the graphic. This. Oh, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the data-driven. You know, ABM yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you have more creativity in you than you. Than That's you true. Do, right? So it's also about like nurturing that side. And what you find is, what I found a lot is, people love that. They love like exploring new, new kind of ways mm-hmm. and sides of themselves. And sometimes you you get some magic to happen that way. But it takes yeah. time. It's not. It's definitely not a process that come in and you're like. Here, the culture has been changed instantly. I've never, I've never seen that yeah. happen. No, I, I think I, I'm, I'm getting a, a like a, a sort of a well-rounded sense of how you operate. Like a lot of leaders, they don't even take the time to like recognize that hidden quality. And you, when you call it out and give them the permission to fail and sort of nurture that, you know, that sort of that is a that is a really really good um, formula. So thanks for sharing that. Now. We are at a point now, you know, where uh, things are all over the place. Uh, you know, generally people are talking about recession and uh-huh. venture capital drying up and all that. And we go through these cycles on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the industry noise has uh, gone up significantly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of crypto debacles are happening. So people are a little bit confused around, you know, what the hell is happening. What do you see um, where, in your crystal ball? Like, where is the startup industry going over the next couple of years? Uh, mm-hmm. What should we be aware of? What should we be, um, you know, focused on as mm-hmm. founders, as as leaders, um, so that you know we can get the best outcome for ourselves, for the mm-hmm. for the companies that we are heading and the economy itself. This is a lot of aspects. That, first of all, I think for. It pains me a lot of people are being laid off. I've been laid off myself and it's it's painful to go through. And I my heart goes out to all the people who are, are being affected by now. It's not an easy time, but I'm at the same time not completely freaked out because this is the benefit of being a little older as I've seen cycles before, you know, in 2000 with the dot-com crash, it felt like the world was ending. And in 2008, it felt like the world was kind of ending. And then even with, if you give back two and a half years, with, like in March, 2020, it felt like the world was kind of ending. And so we ha- we're more resilient than we think. It's certainly not fun to go through. And I wish that we weren't going through this time, but it, but we'll, we'll get through it. I'm very positive about that. So what would I do? I think um, the, the, the critical thing for startups is that they build in some organizational resilience. And, and they actually are very honest and transparent. And they over-communicate with their team. And, you know, a lot of leaders, because they're also struggling, they tend to hide away. You know, that's the worst thing you can do. You got to be in front of your team more. You got to be seen by them. You got to be communicating with them. You got to be leading them. And I actually think at, at these times, you know, happy to be uh, proven wrong. I think, you know, in, in, in when things are going super well and everything is just like up and to the right, I think you can afford to have a culture that takes a little bit longer to like collaborate on things, um, like more bottoms up culture in some ways. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm advocating a top-down culture, but I also think in times like this, when you have a lot of uncertainty, you got to move fast and you got to listen to the right voices and then and then 
get the team to rally around those decisions. You can't spend three months making a decision, which you can mm -hmm. sometimes do when things are like, like you have a little bit more time to execute and so on. So you also have to like start, I think, training people and that and the, or your organization on, you know, we're going to, you know, get as much input, but we're also not going to overdo it. I mean, I've been in companies where it's like took six months to make a decision. Like in times like this, I can guarantee you, you don't have six months to make decisions. You got to, you got to be agile. You got to move fast. And so, so you got to train the company that, you know, we're going to make decisions. Some of them, hopefully, you'll hopefully agree with all of them, but sometimes there might be decisions you don't agree with. And, and, but we have to at least do something. The worst is not making a decision and just kind of in times like this. I think it shows poor leadership when that happens. And so, so leaders have to be, I think, much more in front of their teams. I think that's communicate. They have to provide a vision that they can rally behind, but you also have to get to the bare bones of, uh, what you have to execute on, whether you're in product and sales and marketing and customer success, get to the bare bones of, of, uh, of what is really essential. I bet you most companies now are going through annual planning. They have probably a list of 10 things they need to do and they all sound important. I get, I can guarantee you they're not equally important. They're just not, mm -hmm. there's no way. So what is really the most important? two, three, four things, and then rally around them because you're also going to burn out people. It's already stressful enough. You know, people are reading the news every day. There's a lot of like bad news out there. Get people to focus so they can actually, you know, not burn out, do, do, do less things, but better. That, that would be my advice. And that's true for a startup, a scale up and so on, even, even larger companies. Um, so, so that's kind of what I'm, I'm, you know, when I go around advising companies and spending time with them, it's like, Definitely do more. Show me the list of stuff that you have planned to do. Okay, here's what I here's what I would cut out, and then it gets down to a level below that. You know, when I spend time with a marketing team or sales team, and so on, like, well, tell me really, like, oh, you know, we had plans on expanding here. Uh, maybe you should wait, like, focus on the core right now. Well, we have plans on doing these five campaigns. Uh, maybe you do two instead, right? You know, again, being mindful of the resources you have, not burning your team out, being hyper focused. So those are things. But but really, yeah, for for startups. In, in a time like this, the most important is probably that you figure out a way to become essential. If you're nice to have in a downturn or a recession, you'll probably see your pipeline might be kind of good, but decisions keep getting punted. Just, you know, deals are slipping and so on. I just, and, and I hear about this all the time. So what, what does that mean? Your job then as a, as a team is to figure out, well, how do we become more essential? And you really kind of have, I think, four levers to do so. Can do it through marketing great marketing i mean i'm very passionate about marketing of course like and there you really have to kind of answer the question of why your product and why now so you have to really get to the essence of that so you got you can do better marketing you can do better sales like you know how your sales actually encouraging customers and just and making your product essential you can do it through product i mean are you building in enough hooks in your product that it becomes a must-have not a nice to have and then you can do it, I think, through customer success, the way you kind of treat your customers and the way you um, give them more value than they expect out of, uh, of, of your product. But but it's probably, honestly, not one of the four. It's probably all of the four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. But but it really, you have to get to the point where you become essential. And you so, so so I think that's that's critical as well. But I'd also be lying if I said there was an easy answer. I think a lot of people are looking for easy answers when I talk, just tell me the magic bullet or what I should do. I'm like, you got to move fast. You got to line and you got to like trust each other, support each other. Cause I bet you everybody in your company is going through stress. Mm -hmm. You know, your head of sales, your CFO, your marketing leader there, you got to trust and support each other. You know, it doesn't mean you can't yeah. disagree, 
but but man, you know, like that's the best when you get that that camaraderie and focus. Amazing things happen. Awesome, that's great advice. Um, now you've already talked about uh, your your mentors and how people have helped you, but now you are in a different position. You're actually mm -hmm. looking for talent. You're looking for founders. Mm -hmm. So, what are some of the common traits that you look for um, in the future, sort of you know, uh, unicorn founders? Yeah, it, it depends on I would say the stage of their life that they're in. If they're like you know very young. <laughs> um, then I look for uh, grit and aptitude and hunger and kind of smarts. You know, I, I uh, invested in uh, uh, this double dating app. Uh, I met the founder. He was like a 23-year-old guy um, called Dennis. Uh, his app was called Double with two Bs. And I just love the vision of like creating an environment where it's not just about hooking up, but it's like like actually creating friends. You go on a date, two people, and they had two people. And it becomes more of a friendship thing. And I've always yeah, been attracted yeah. to things that bring people together in a very positive mm -hmm. way with my experience from LinkedIn and Chatter and Box yeah, and so yeah. on. But I met him. I was like, I love this vision. And I love how passionate he is about it. I mean, he's straight out of school. He has no experience. But it's like the grit, the aptitude, the hunger, the smarts. I'm like, okay good guy i would so and i can coach and mentor him so so i love that if it's a little older then i look for like a little bit of pattern recognition like how are they as a leader have they had some success in the, in the past have they gone from success to success to success or have they had some failures along the way actually a couple of failures is good because you learn actually i think more mm -hmm. from failures than your yeah, successes yeah, yeah. Uh, because that teaches you how to have grit right because you're going on a startup journey Definitely. you gotta have a lot of grit man it's a, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy so People who have just had success their whole life, and they say, "I'm going to be a startup founder." I'm like, Oof, uh, "Do you know what you're in for?" Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you've had some success, some failures, like I, I think you're you're you probably have a good shot at actually succeeding because you know what it takes to get there. Mm. So it's different what I look for, but I mean, a lot of it's um, um, it's like, the, but it, the, the, those three qualities I think stays the same: grit, aptitude, and hunger. You have to really want it because it's not easy. Um, and then, of course, I look for the idea. Like, it's just, a, is it a different idea? Is it unique enough? Is it differentiated enough? You know, coming back to my framework, I'm not looking for things that are just incrementally different. I'm looking for something that's kind of something I haven't seen before. When I saw that, yeah. that double lap, I'm like, I, I haven't seen that. Maybe other people have because I'm not yeah, yeah, used yeah. to these apps because I've been yeah, married yeah. for a long time. Yeah. But I'm like, it's yeah. cool. I'm like, yeah. And when I see some of these apps, I'm like, if it's something that I can totally get behind, you know, and I think the world needs it, then I'll either like introduce him to Sequoia or other VCs I'm involved with, or I might even try to mentor or coach these, the, the, the founders as well. But, uh, but yeah, um, there's another one, for example, um, uh, I, I, I'm an advisor to a company called Radius and I love Amina. Uh, she is uh, a founder. She, I think she's up, she's up in Oregon. And, uh, she's basically created a, an idea where, you know, all these people have uh, homes sometimes they're sitting sitting empty or maybe you have a extra space because your kids have moved out or you have a in-law unit and now with people working remotely why can't you go rent them for a day instead of people are so tired of sitting at home working right uh so they want to get out maybe they want to meet new people maybe you want to get a new environment maybe you want to be traveling on the road but you don't want to you don't have a place to work you don't want to sit in starbucks all day so she's created an awesome app it's kind of like an airbnb in some ways but for renting office space but the office space is not office space it's going you know verified places it might be a camper van that's like has high-speed internet yeah, yeah, like yeah coffee maker and you can sit there and watch a waterfall it's like i love this idea you know it's like mm -hmm. bringing people together and bringing new experience i hadn't seen it before so i'm like yeah, i'm in <laughs> you know yeah. those are the kind of things where i look for like just something that's a little bit different 
That's great. That's great. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation yeah. as I anticipated. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, all that weight has paid off um, <laughs> uh, the, the delays that we had. So thank you so much for spending time sharing your knowledge and experience. Uh, now, before I let you go, if people want to connect with you, what is the best way they can do that? Uh, definitely on LinkedIn. I mean, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I write a lot there. You can find me, Robin Daniels. Um, and just send me, a, send me a chat if you saw this. And I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, I hope you connect. Awesome. We'll put that uh, your profile link in the show notes. Great topic of the day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Bootstrapping Your Dream. Bootstrapping Your Dream. We bring you life-changing insights about starting and growing your business, making your life and family happy. Given the fact that you listened to the whole episode, we know you are an awesome fan. Awesome fan. So why not help us spread the message? Please share the podcast with others who can benefit from it. And if you are feeling extra generous, leave a review on iTunes or any other platform where you are listening to the podcast.